You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello there, and welcome to episode 62 of Attaboy Clarence. Hope you're all having a lovely summer. Hey, what's the most exciting advert created by scientists you've ever heard? I guarantee it isn't this one. I never cease to wonder at the many ways scientists have learned to improve on nature. And it seems to me that Plenamon's, Rexall's popular multivitamin capsules, make a pretty good example. Why, how do you mean? Well, ma'am, long and careful study of the Plenamon's formula has enabled Rexall's scientists to make the vitamins it contains more stable than they are in their natural state. For example, the vitamin C in Plenamon's is more stable that is less liable to lose its full natural potency than the same amount in orange juice would be shortly after the juice is squeezed from the fresh orange. Well, how do they do it? Well, for one thing, the vitamins contained in plenamins are protected in the capsule by a special fruit acid which helps keep them at their full potency. What's more, plenamins are carefully fortified so that when you take them, you can be sure you're getting, at the very least, the amount stated on the label. Oh. Good heavens, I mean, if only there was some way of sprucing the thing up. Give it a lick of paint, perhaps a song, perhaps a famous guest star. Let's have another try, shall we, Rexall? Ready to hear your new favourite song ever? All hail, all hail, the Rexall one cent sale. The Rexall original one cent sale starts a week from today. So don't you fail to shop at this Rexall jamboree and take the advice of our Peggy Lee. At Rexall's original one cent sale, you can save dollar bills by the peck and pail. This kind of shopping you sure enjoy at Rexall's original. Uh, take it, Roy. Two for the price that you pay for one, plus a penny more. And it's a lot of fun. A week from today, come and say, gimme, gimme, at Rexall's original. Take it, Jimmy. At Rexall's original one cent sale, you save your dough on a stupendous scale. It helps put inflation back on the skids. At Rexall's original, take it, kids. At Rexall's original one cent sale, the bargains there are big as a whale. And that quite effectively tells the tale of Rexall's original one cent sale. Boom. You see what scientists can achieve if they put their mind to it? Anyway, very exciting stuff this week. The second Secret History of Hollywood ebook was released. Yes, the game is afoot is now available as an ebook, either from the website or from Amazon. Take your pick. The prices are all over the place depending on where you live. So if you wish to purchase it, check out both options first and make sure you choose the cheapest one. Of course, if you are a patron who has chosen ebooks as your reward, then you will have already received it. Also, I'll be drawing the winner 
of the competition later, one of you eagle-eyed treasure hunters who found the hidden entry form on attaboyclarence.com will be picked to win two great prizes. I have a copy of Spring-Heeled Jack, The Terror of London, and a brand new DVD copy of Anastasia, starring Ingrid Bergman. As I say, I'll be pulling a winner out of the hat later. So if you managed to enter, and there were loads of you, then listen on to find out if you've won. I also have another competition this week with a ridiculously brilliant prize so do be ready to enter that too details to come but for now maybe you have a question well throw it into the question pot strangely there is no next line well maybe i'll read your question out on the show or maybe not now here's someone with a handbell First question this week is from Natalie, who writes, How can I get the Question Pot song out of my head? I find myself humming it all the time. Help me! (laughs) Natalie, I'm really sorry, but... I don't know how to help you. Why don't you think of something else? Like the man from the Brighton Strangler. Maybe Suki can think of something. Oh, yes, I can. Uh, Thanks for asking me. I think Natalie should stick her nose in other dogs' bottoms. That's my favourite hobby, that is. Your silence makes me feel very uncomfortable. May I change my advice? I think Natalie should buy herself something nice from Amazon. I would give all that I own if you would stop looking at me like that. Sweet Jesus, man, it's not a lot to ask. I would give all that I own for this fantasy to become flesh. Go and lie down. I will do that, I will. Okay, second question is from Andrew Norris, who writes, I'd love to hear a long podcast about the Ealing Studios, especially the comedies. Any chance of the Attaboy Clarence treatment of the Powell-Pressburger partnership? My all-time favourite film is A Canterbury Tale. Canterbury. Recently took a selfie next to the new blue plaque commemorating their work near Baker Street. Love all your podcasts. Thanks for providing so much listening pleasure. All the best, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew, and great idea. I'll let you in on something. I have, for some time now, been rolling an idea around in my mind to create a secret history spin-off, a separate show looking at British cinema history, which I think would be very cool indeed. The secret history of British cinema, which would take in things like Ealing and early Gainsborough and Gaumont British stories and, dare I suggest it, Hammer Films... Anyway, it looks more and more likely now that I've registered a few bits and bobs. So once this current workload is out of the way, I'll be embarking on that particular show, which I'm very much looking forward to. And to answer your question, yes, Ealing will be featuring prominently on that one. Lastly, this week, we'll hear a question from Charlie, who asks, Are there any movies that you find so bad slash odious slash offensive slash without merit that you will never, ever consider watching them again? Unfortunately so, Charlie. If you mean films from the modern era, then the one that springs instantly to my mind is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which I was so repulsed by that I actually took the video cassette out of my home to a rubbish bin some way down the street and dropped it in as I couldn't bear the thought of it being in my house for another moment. If you mean older films, though, I do harbour a particular dislike of the movie Daughter of Dr. Jekyll from 1957, which I talked about on one of the patron shows recently. 
Seriously awful film. I was very grossed out by Unshan Andalou, even though I did find it morbidly fascinating too. The return of Dr. X, which starred Humphrey Bogart as a vampire, was pretty abysmal too. And anything starring Olsen and Johnson or the Ritz brothers is an instant turn-off for me. I'm not really offended by many older films. They're so inoffensive in the main, aren't they? But I do find it unforgivable when a film bores me. Do not bore me. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Well, this week I thought I'd do something very different, because the cinema experience of the 30s and 40s didn't just involve the movie. There were all kinds of pre-movie entertainments, from newsreels and musical performances to travel logs and factual films. By far, though, the most popular part of the pre-movie experience was the cartoon. Whether it was Tom and Jerry or a Merry Melodies short, sitting high atop this gang of animated adventures, though, in terms of quality and innovation, was Walt Disney's series of musical cartoon shorts. 75 works of art that not only act as a dazzling body of entertainment, but also as a fascinating insight into the evolution of the Walt Disney Studio. Let me tell you why. Walt Disney was always an innovator, not just in the world of animation, but in the world of cinema itself. In 1928, he just lost the contract with Universal Studios to create Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons. Universal were in the middle of cutting costs, and they decided to make the Oswald cartoons in-house, instead of paying Disney to make them. Well, Disney and his lead animator, Ub Iwerks, set up shop on their own, and after much brainstorming, they came up with Mickey Mouse. Straight away, Mickey Mouse was a hit. His first appearance was in 1928's Steamboat Willie, where he famously whistled his way down the river. At the beginning of every Disney movie released these days, you see a clip from Steamboat Willie play. The sound on this cartoon was added afterwards, which was obviously very difficult to achieve. The first of Disney's musical cartoons came in 1929, when Walt Disney decided to try his hand at directing a cartoon in a completely original way. As I say, up until this time, cartoons were animated and then sound was recorded for it afterwards. Sound and animation were very much in their primitive stages, and many studios thought that doing it this way round was more economical. In 1929, Walt Disney decided he needed a break from Mickey Mouse, and he directed The Skeleton Dance, which took the bold step of animating to sound, instead of the other way around. The cartoon itself is set in a shadowy graveyard, where on the stroke of midnight, four skeletons rise from their graves and perform a dance routine using not only their surroundings, but each other's bones. The cartoon only exists in a black and white version, but it is incredibly creative in its use of sound and humour. At one point, one of these skeletons pulls the legs from another and plays his ribcage like a xylophone, which of course mirrors the music that's playing behind it.
Even though it's the oldest and the creakiest looking of the musical collection, my children have watched the skeleton dance hundreds of times. They even know the dance routine off by heart. So don't let the fact that it's in monochrome put you off. The musical novelty of this cartoon created a buzz around the Disney studio. They'd come up with a new way of working that was to set the animation to music. And struck with inspiration, Disney decided to create more of these musical novelties, which quickly came to be known as the Silly Symphonies. From 1929 to 1932, Disney churned out 27 more of these, with subjects ranging from Mother Goose rhymes to musical cannibals. And all of them were landing big with audiences. But Disney, always seeking to innovate with animation, was looking at ways of improving his output. It was around this time that he saw a test screening of Technicolor's new three-strip color process, which for the first time allowed for bright, bold colors to appear on screen. Up until this point, people were still using a two-strip process, which meant that the colors were very dull and washed out and generally overshadowed by one color in general. They were mainly blue or mainly red or mainly green. Disney could see the potential in shooting in this new three-strip process and signed an exclusivity contract with Technicolor, which meant that only his cartoons could use this process until 1935. Other studios, such as Fleischer, had to make do with two-strip color, which is why those early color Popeye cartoons look so dreadful to modern eyes. With the new process in his arsenal, Disney again decided to use the Silly Symphonies as his laboratory. The cartoon currently in production at Disney was a small fairy tale about an enchanted forest that was actually almost completed. Disney scrapped the entire project and they started from scratch using full color. The result was Flowers and Trees, which is a charming little tale about two woodland trees in love who are threatened by an evil hollow tree who wants the female tree for himself. When she rejects him, he starts a forest fire, which the wildlife have to fight to extinguish. It was a huge hit when it was released, going on to win the very first Academy Award for Best Animated Short. Disney immediately declared that each subsequent Silly Symphony short would henceforth be in full Technicolor, which gave him a huge advantage over his rivals. Just one year later, in 1933, the Silly Symphonies were fast becoming the most popular animated series on screen. But nothing could have prepared the world for the impact of the cartoon that they would release in May of that year. A retelling of a simple child's fairy tale set to music that would cause a worldwide sensation. Its name was The Three Little Pigs. It's almost impossible to comprehend how popular this cartoon was in its day. There are stories of people leaving cinema the moment it was over, so as to rejoin the queue for the next showing so that they could see it again. 
Well, because of this, the cartoon was advertised above the main movie on most posters at cinemas. And it was held over at most locations for months on end. In fact, it was held over for so long that cinema owners began to draw old age beards on the pigs on the movie's posters outside. I built my house of stone. I built my house of bricks. The song that features in the cartoon, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, became such a cultural phenomenon that people these days sometimes make the mistake of thinking that it's a folk song or something that's been around for hundreds of years. It was, in fact, composed for this cartoon, and spying an opportunity, Disney released it on record, and it became one of the best-selling songs available at the time. Even the sheet music became a bestseller. In years to come, people would use the song as an allegory of the Great Depression, and then later, the Nazis. Not only did the music sell, but storybooks based on the film's plot, dolls, clothing, and every other kind of merchandise flew from store shelves. It has since been described as perhaps the most successful short animation of all time. Certainly, its legacy is indelible in popular culture. You want to know why every movie has a line of merchandise to accompany it these days? Look at the Three Little Pigs. You want to know why pop stars record songs especially for movies? Look at the Three Little Pigs. Certainly it feels like the first proper Disney cartoon, somewhat more polished and charming than anything that came before it. Even the early Mickey Mouse cartoons were a little rough around the edges and crucially he was still in black and white at the time. Looking at the cartoon now, it seems like a basic blueprint for every Disney hit that came afterwards. You have the hero and his comedy sidekicks and the growling villain. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in! And the lush, bouncy animation and the hit song. It also, unfortunately, gave rise to one of the Disney Studios' more disappointing tactics. Hoping to milk more money out of the Three Little Pigs, Disney commissioned sequels to the cartoon, and while they're okay, they are nowhere near as charming as the first one. Subsequent appearances saw them blending into the Red Riding Hood story, as well as the Big Bad Wolf's Bad Little Children and others. These were not so well received, but the diminishing returns taught Walt Disney a valuable lesson. There is no such thing as an easy buck, or as he rather eloquently put it himself, you can't top pigs with more pigs. It's a shame that the Disney studios seem to have forgotten that these days. The success of the Three Little Pigs spurred Walt himself into the first stages of realizing a dream he long held, that the world was ready for a full-length animated motion picture. This, of course, would end up being Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which would take another four years and almost a million and a half dollars to produce. The story of Walt's ruthlessness once Snow White was completed is well documented and in fact features heavily in my Hunting Witches with Walt Disney episode of The Secret History of Hollywood. He wasn't the nicest of people, shall we say. 
Well, during the four years production phase of Snow White, Disney's animators used the Silly Symphony series as their testing ground, their gymnasium, if you will, where they trained and honed their skills in animation, sound design, and storytelling. And with each improvement came another hit. At the end of 1933, they released The Pied Piper, another animated version of a popular fairy tale, this time with a darker edge. The town of Hamelin is overrun with rats, and the townsfolk can take it no longer. I declare that it's a pity Our community is overrun with rats As mayor of the city He declares it is a pity Our community is overrun with rats Rats, we gotta get rid of the rats Rats I'll give this bag of gold This bag of shining gold To anyone who'll rid us of the rats Rats, who rid us of the rats a stranger shows up at their gates and tells them that he can rid the town of rats in exchange for one bag of gold. I'll rid your town of rats, I'll take the bag of gold. You'll rid the town of rats, you'll get this bag of gold. They agree and the man lures away the rats with his magic pipe, but when he returns, the townsfolk refuse to pay him. I've done my work as I was told. Now I'll take my bag of gold. A bag of gold? <laughs> you crazy loon! I all you did was pipe a tune. All you did was pipe a tune. All you did was pipe a tune. In revenge, he plays another tune on his pipe, one that lures all the children in town to a magic mountain, which opens as they approach. The children dance merrily through the crack in the wall and it closes behind them and they are never seen again. You're dishonest and ungrateful and it really is a shame that the children of this city should grow up to be the same. I'll save the children from such a fate. I'll pipe them away before it's too late. <laughs> You're only bluffing. Do your worst. Blow your pipe until you burst. Blow your pipe until you burst. Blow your Dark stuff for a kid's cartoon, really, dressed up in a bright and colourful piece of animation, and it's easy to see the germs of Snow White here. The fairy tales of olden times always had a dark slant to them, and in these early cinematic retellings, they were always kept intact. This cartoon version tries to justify this macabre kidnapping of the children by showing the kids doing all the hard work in the village, almost as if they were being exploited by the adults. Plus, we get a peek of the inside of the mountain before it swallows them up, and it's all candy canes and playgrounds, so they're obviously going to a better place. My kids find it really creepy all the same, and I do too, I must admit. Another important short came in 1934 with The Wise Little Hen, which tells the story of a hard-working hen who plants corn to feed her family. There once was a wise little hen who worried now and then For fear that she'd be found in need when winter came again With a basket full of corn, she started out alone She hoped to get the hen she meant to help her plant her corn 
Throughout the entire film, she breaks off from her work in order to beseech her neighbors for help, but each time they refuse her. Will you help me plant my girl? Will you help me plant my girl? When she finally harvests the corn and uses it to make lots of delicious food, they suddenly want in on it, but she tells them to sling their hooks. It's important because one of the aforementioned neighbors, who won't help the wise little hen, would go on to be the most popular Disney star of the next two decades. Yes, even more popular than Mickey Mouse, can you believe? This was the cartoon debut of Mr. Donald Duck. By 1935, Walt's tyrannical side had begun to truly emerge. Delays on Snow White and the ever-ballooning budget of the project was beginning to take its toll on him. And thrashing around for scapegoats, he unfortunately decided to blame his loyal band of animators, especially the directors amongst them. One day, he snapped and announced to his team that he was going to show them how it was done. Rifling through the story prospects, he selected an upcoming project that told the story of King Midas. He stole two of the most talented animators from the team and quite literally barricaded them all in his office where he spent the next few months producing what he believed would be the studio's magnum opus when it came to animated shorts. The finished cartoon was given the name The Golden Touch and tells the tale of greedy King Midas, a slobby, money-obsessed monarch who spends his days doing nothing more than counting his riches in his vault. I'm known as rich King Midas, and when you look at me, you see a king who knows a thing about his treasury. I never cared for women, I've never cared for wine, but when I count a large amount of money, <laughs> it's divine. <laughs> He's visited by a pixie named Goldie, who decides to teach the miserly king a lesson by bestowing upon him the golden touch, meaning that everything Midas touches turns to gold. My gold, my kingdom, Everything for the golden touch. <laughs> Keep thy shirt on, old king. To you, the golden touch would prove a golden curse. A curse? A curse? Ah! Man, curse me with a golden touch! <laughs> ah, but gold is the snare of the soul. Gold is the root of all evil. Gold is the... Fiddlestick! Give me gold! Not advice! So be it. I gave the advice... Now I give thee gold! Midas is delighted with his newfound superpower and proceeds to turn everything he can see into gold. However, he soon comes to realize that the golden touch is actually a curse, as when he tries to eat, the food turns to gold on his lips. Is the richest king in all the world to starve to death? <laughs> oh, no, no, no! 
begging Goldie for another chance, Midas agrees to trade everything he owns in exchange for the removal of the Golden Touch, and the film ends with him sat in the barren ruins of what was once his castle, happily eating dinner in his underwear. I must preface this by saying that I've always found this cartoon to be rather charming. I really like the brevity of the thing. It's literally in and out within seven or eight minutes. It looks a little cheaper than most of the other silly symphonies of the time, but it's got a certain period charm to it. It's rather like those ladybird fairy tale books you used to get in the 70s. The castle's lit with a sort of golden dusk light, and the gardens are all very lush, and the king wears pantaloons and really feels like a fairy tale land. So anyway, that's what I think of it. Good heavens, though, people at the time absolutely hated it. Not only was it an absolute bomb, it soon became a running joke around the Disney studio that maybe old Walt should hang up his directing shoes, because it was quite clear to everyone that, ironically, he'd lost his golden touch. Disney animating legend Jack Kinney recalled that Walt moved into his own music room and started making The Golden Touch, the King Midas story. This was a very hush-hush operation with just two animators who were sworn to secrecy. The entire studio awaited this epic and finally it was finished and previewed at the Alex Theatre in Glendale. All personnel turned out to see what Walt had wrought. He had wrought a bomb. The Golden Touch laid a great big golden egg. That picture was the last Walt ever directed. We knew better than to discuss it, ever. It was forgotten and the studio went on to other things. Years later, Walt roared into Wilfred Jackson's office and started chewing him out about something or other. Jackson was usually a very calm guy, but he was a redhead, and this time he blew his cool. Walt, he said, I recollect that you once directed a picture called The Golden Touch. There was instant silence. Walt stared at Jackson, then stomped out, slamming the door. After a few beats, the door opened and Walt's head popped back in. Wearing a heavy frown and very slowly punctuating his words with his finger, he said, Never, ever mention that picture again. Then he slammed the door and clumped down the hall. Needless to say, it was never mentioned again. Yes, The Golden Touch was the film that finished, once and for all time, the directorial efforts of Walt Disney. He was so disappointed with the finished result that he never again attempted to direct a piece of animation for the studio, although obviously, as the studio's producer, he did give generous input into every project. I must just quickly mention the next silly symphony, The Robber Kitten, which I absolutely love, but my kids absolutely hate for some reason. It's all about a kitten who runs away to become a robber and changes his ways after he meets a real-life villain called Dirty Bill. It's sort of unremarkable, but I really, really like the song, which goes... Why, I'm Dirty Bill from Cootie Hill I fight and shoot and rob and kill I never took a bath and I never will. Oh, dirty Bill, I never took a bath and I never will. Oh, dirty Bill. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, the next really inventive piece of animation from the Silly Symphonies came in October of 1935 with the release of Music Land. 
a truly remarkable achievement in not only animation, but sound design and storytelling. This is the Romeo and Juliet story, retold in that magical way that only Disney could pull off. On one side of the mythical Sea of Discord lies the Isle of Jazz, where living jazz instruments party the day away. On the other side of the sea is the land of symphony, an altogether more refined kingdom where classical instruments live in harmonious melody. One day, the prince of the Isle of Jazz, a tuba, spies in his telescope the princess of the land of symphony, a violin, and determines to cross the sea of discord to romance her. I won't spoil what follows, but rest assured you will be dazzled by the invention here, from the voices of the characters as musical notes and chords. to the amazing battle between countries, each firing off musical cues against each other. It's a breathtakingly well-told story that will amaze you with its imagination. Funnily, it, it kind of reflected the mood of the time, too. Jazz was seen by many as the destruction of culture. Many viewed jazz as the end of civilization, for heaven's sake. And instead of siding with the conservatives, Disney and his gang pulled off a remarkable feat by showing its audience that ultimately, music is never a destructive force when it harmonizes with the world around it. Seriously, if you haven't seen Musicland, it is a great one to start with. By 1937, production on Snow White was really barreling along. The Disney studio had begun to perfect the rotoscoping technique, which involved filming a living subject and tracing over its movements so as to better imitate real life. You can really see this best if you watch Snow White today. The characters of Snow White and the Queen and the Prince were all highly detailed and based on intricately designed studies of human movement. Snow White's limbs move like real human limbs, whereas the dwarves in the film still retain those exaggerated features and those rubber limbs that seem to bend like taffy. Well, all these advances in animation, which were light years ahead of what anyone else in the animation field was achieving, were all due to the silly symphonies, which were turning into a university of animation, where animators dedicated to their art were given budgets and the freedom to study their craft. But while human movement was being perfected, there were many areas that were still lacking. Depth of field was something that was still crucially missing from many animations at the time. Pictures still looked rather flat. No matter how much detail was added, the pictures looked like pictures. And this was a problem that needed to be solved if Snow White was going to be taken seriously. They solved the problem in 1937, when the inventor William Garrity came up with a device called the multiplane camera, which was essentially a series of up to seven shelves that could each have their heights adjusted. Slotted into these shelves were the animator's drawings 
buildings, which were painted in oils onto glass. And above this grand structure, the camera, which looked down through the artworks. This means that on the bottom shelf, you would have your background. And on every shelf above it, pieces of landscape or surroundings, finishing at the top, the shelf nearest to the camera lens, which would be the objects or characters closest to the forefront of the screen. If you're, if you're confused, just Google it and you'll see what I mean. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not very good at explaining. What this apparatus allowed was complete depth of field and almost 3D vision of the world. You could begin on a spider's web through which you could see a lake beyond which you could faintly see a rickety old windmill in the distance. In fact, that is exactly the scene you see in Disney's first use of the new system, a silly symphony short entitled The Old Mill. The story of the old mill is essentially nothing more than a brief moment in time at a run-down, abandoned windmill that countless forms of wildlife call their home. One night, the mill is battered by a storm, and the animals cling to their surroundings until the storm passes. That is kind of it, story-wise. But this cartoon isn't really about the story, it's more about the incredible technical achievement involved. This is perhaps the most important Silly Symphony cartoon that Disney produced, because not only did it pioneer the use of the multiplane camera, which completely revolutionized animation, but it was the cartoon that Disney used in order to perfect realistic animal movement, weather effects, lightning effects, color effects, three-dimensional effects. Its importance in the evolution of Disney's animation technique really cannot be overstated. It is a beautiful masterpiece of animation and really marks the point at which Disney cartoons took on that mythical hyper-fantasy sense of magic, where the animation exudes that gauzy, hypnotic beauty. It deservedly won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short, and its legacy would be felt throughout the entirety of Disney's motion pictures. It may sound slightly hyperbolic, but just look at the shorts that preceded it. You had Little Hiawatha and Woodland Cafe just before it, which are great, but jaggedly different in terms of quality. The Old Mill really marks the turning point in Disney's quality level. From here on in, Disney animation became poetry. I'm going to skip ahead now to December of 1938. Snow White has been released to massive critical acclaim. Disney has been hailed as the genius of his field. The film is by far the highest grossing film of the year. In fact, it is the highest grossing sound film to date. The downside to this success is the slow death of the Silly Symphony series. Lessons have been learned and from here on in the team are devoted not to experimentation, but to solidifying the characters they've created as well as working on more full-length feature films, such as Pinocchio and Fantasia and Dumbo. Production on these silly symphonies began to slow down, but not before a brief final flourish. In 1938, Disney released Mother Goose Goes Hollywood, a showcase of Mother Goose characters, all played by popular Hollywood stars of the period. 
There were a lot of cartoons that did this, most notably Hollywood Steps Out from Warner Brothers, which I've always considered to be the best of the bunch. The impersonations in it are absolutely spot on. But there were many, many others such as Hollywood Picnic from Columbia and Slick Hair and Hollywood Daffy from The Merry Melodies. These cartoons are always fun to watch to see which famous movie stars you can spot. <laughs> it's difficult to imagine today's stars allowing themselves to be lampooned so ruthlessly. You can imagine a ton of lawsuits flying about the place if Nickelodeon suddenly started ribbing the Kardashian sisters in the same way that animators did back in the Golden Age. Anyway, Mother Goose Goes Hollywood from the Silly Symphonies came roaring out in 1938. And while it wasn't the best of the Hollywood cartoons, it got a great many things absolutely perfect. By far the best caricature is that of Catherine Hepburn, who plays Little Bo Peep. I'm Little Bo Peep. I've lost my sheep, really I have. I can't find them anywhere, really I can't. I think so, don't you? I do. They were such lovely sheep. Really they were. Thankfully she appears at many intervals and the impersonation of her is brilliant. You then have Laurel and Hardy, Charles Lawton, Fred Astaire, Spencer Tracy, Edward G. Robinson, Greta Garbo, it's great stuff. But the jokes aren't killer, and it does have a howling streak of racism running through it unfortunately. If I say that the 4 and 20 blackbirds are played by 24 black cartoon stereotypes, that will give you some idea of what's to come. However, when it hits its stride, it's superb stuff, and it's worth watching for Catherine Hepburn alone. I've lost my sheep. I can't find them anywhere, really, I can't. The Silly Symphony series produced just two more entries. In early 1939, a third sequel to The Three Little Pigs called The Practical Pig, and a second full-color version of The Ugly Duckling. As it is, the Silly Symphonies ran from 1929 to 1939 and in its 10 years on top, produced not only a wonderful series of entertainment, but an almost complete dictionary of the American animation story, from monochrome to color, from its baby steps in sound to fully soundtracked marvels, from flat two-dimensional pictures to fully immersive landscapes. There are dozens of shorts that I love and I haven't even mentioned, such as Funny Little Bunnies and Who Killed Cock Robin, which was so good, it ended up appearing in Alfred Hitchcock's Sabotage. There's the Three Blind Mouseketeers and Peculiar Penguins and the Flying Mouse and the Goddess of Spring, which is like a full-blown opera featuring Satan. Just so many incredible works of art that make up this stunning time capsule of a truly golden age of creativity and imagination. Anyway, on to some radio entertainment for you, which this week comes from the Mickey Mouse Theatre, which ran from January to May of 1938 and was used mainly as a vehicle to promote the release of Snow White. Each week, audiences were treated to appearances from Disney's stable of characters, and each week, a separate fairy tale would be adapted for the radio, including some of the best-known of the Silly Symphony series. Well, on March 13th, 1938, the show broadcast a superb adaptation of one of my favorites, The Pied Piper, featuring the original cast and music from the Silly Symphony short. So we'll cross on over to that now for a very silly slice of Disney magic. See you on the other side. <laughs>
come a sketching Bermondy, and we called a piper to charm the rats away. He heard the tales of people told and said, Oh boy, I'll knock them cold. And started into play. Sure, the Pied Piper lured nothing but rats. That's right, Goofy, but for doing it, he got bags of gold. Hey, did you say bags of gold? Wah, wah, wah. Hey, listen, Donald. Did you lure rats with that flute of yours? Oh, sure, I'm Say, Mickey. Uh, yeah? How about taking the gang through the magic mirror to Hamlin Town? Oh, boy, that's a swell idea. Yeah, I almost thought of that myself. Maybe Donald can rid the town of rats and get a big bag of gold. Yeah, what uh, uh, the Pied Piper be sore? <laughs> Mickey, what do you say we give Donald the honor of calling the magic mirror? Pardon me, my mistake. can't understand a word you say, Donald. <laughs> What'd you say, Clara? Oh, oh. Oh, I think you're right. Mickey, Clara says that if you really intend to go to Hamlin Town, you'd better call the mirror yourself. Command. Uh, to Hamelin Town, we'd like to go. But uh, up here's got a foot to blow. It <laughs> shall be as you desire. Rats. 
jumping Jiminy Cricket. Look at the rats. It's a convention. Jiminy, the rats are every place. On top of the houses, leaning out of the windows, marching up and down the streets. And the poor people are scared to death. Oh, Mickey, it's dreadful. Yeah, maybe we ought to do something. Hey, Goofy, you better go over and ask that lady if we can help her. Sure. Hello, sister. Are the rats getting in your hair? <laughs> There's not a thing in Hamlin Town the rats won't build a nest in. Why, only yesterday they ate the flannels I look best in. Rats! Rats! We've got to get rid of the rats! Last night while I prepared for bed, my mattress disappeared. The rats just built a five-room nest in Grandpa Sneezy's beard. Rats! Rats! We've got to get rid of the rats! I declare it is a pity. Our community is overrun with rats. We've laid traps and put out poison, but they still annoy the boys and all the girls in town are slowly going back. Rats! We've got to get rid of the rats. Rats! Rats! We've got to get rid of the rats. Our fair city is fairly squirming with these vicious little vermin. Every nook and every corner's occupied. But the facts can't be evaded. We, the people, must be aided. Our community must be de-ratified. Rats! Rats! We've got to get rid of the rats! 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 Attention! His Honor, the Mayor of Hamelin Town! <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, fellow citizen. Fellow citizen. Fellow citizen. Hello, folks. <laughs> I have an important announcement. Important announcement. Announcement. I think I've got something here. Oh, Bar, what have you to offer? What have you done to help us in this terrible catastrophe? No, don't be a doubting Thomas. You, the people, have my promise that I'll save your homes and bungalows and flats. Things are getting worse and worse, and I'll give gold to any person who will rid our fair community of rats. Town. Oh, I begin to see. You mean he plays so horribly that he frightens them away. <laughs> you see, when Donald plays the flute, the rats think they smell cheese. <laughs> they follow him out. Oh, very well, my friend. If by playing your magic flute you can pipe the rats away, you shall have this bag of gold. This bag of gold. gold. It's yours. Okay, Donald, do your stuff. The street is full of rats. Now you start piping and gather them around you. Gosh, Donald, I don't know. 
There's only one rat left in sight, and he's got his hands over his ears. <laughs> hey, Donald, Donald, don't give up now. We've got to get that bag of gold. Stranger, what are you doing in Hamlin Town? I am the Pied Pipe. Oh, it is. Denounce this duck as a faker. He must be stopped. Hold, wait. Surely there cannot be two Pied Pipers of Hamlin. In that you are right. I am the Pied Piper. Uh, Mayor, Your Honor, let us then have a contest between these two. Is this fair enough? With this pipe, I shall call out every rat in all the town. Very well. You strangers shall have the first opportunity. Play and call out the rats. Call out the rats. The rats. Oh, commence. Tis well. Listen and watch. <laughs> Friend Duckling, tis your turn. Hey, Donald, look. The, the rats have all run back into the houses. Yeah, you must have had your flute in reverse. I can call them back and lead them out of town. Every one of them. Very well, stranger. And if you do this, you shall get a bag of gold. Tis a bargain. Stand back and watch. Your plague of wrath is at an end. The rat! He's charmed them! Why, they're following him by the millions. Strike up the band! <laughs> 
since we're rid of the nuisance of rats who endangered our lives. That Piper's a dandy, and may come in handy. We'll have him get rid of our wives. (laughs) Citizens, citizens, the Piper is returning for his bag of gold. Quiet! Silence, you fools! Why should we pay this ragged beggar our gold? Consider this. There are no rats in Hamlin. All have been driven out. You double-crossing cheapskate. Oh, 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 what's that? Ah, you heard me. Please, Mickey, no scene. <laughs> An impetuous lad. <laughs> well, friends, which would do the greater good? To give this bag of our good gold to a ragged piper, or shall we spend it on food, wine, or celebrate, a celebrate, a celebrate, a celebrate? Hey, listen to me, you bunch of double-crossing pikers. Gently, my friend, gently. Risk not your life on my account. Oh, yeah, but, but listen, Piper. Peace. The Pied Piper is no ordinary mortal. Some even say that I'm not immortal, that I'm a son of the gods. Oh, gosh. She will. <laughs> say nothing. Watch. Witness my revenge. And shall we also give your friends a dark, a gentle lesson? Oh, sure. Give him the works. He needs it. <laughs> <laughs> so be it. Oh, citizens and noble mayor of Hamlin Town, have words. Oh, speak, thou ragged knave. I have rid this town of rats. I claim my bag of gold. <laughs> Listen to the fool. He says his bag of gold. <laughs> Here, my good fellow, here's a silver coin for you. Now be gone. Citizens of Hamlin, mark well these words and remember this in those unhappy years to come. On this earth and forever, all men for all things must pay the piper. Farewell. Gee, where'd he go, Minnie? Mickey, it's, it's Maggie. He's vanished. <laughs> Good riddance to bad rubbish. On with the celebration. Wine and food for everybody. Come, my friends, let the duck's band wipe out the evil flavor of the piper's words. Play, my duckling. <laughs> Boy, are we glad 
to be back. Hello, you know. gang. Say, you had me worried for a while. The, the Pied Piper sort of put one over on you, didn't he? <laughs> you fixed him, did you? How did you do that? <laughs> well, I'll be... The Pied Piper's flute. Hey, Donald, how'd you get it? Goofy, you tell us. Well, the Piper laid his flute down, you see, and Donald laid his alongside of it, sort of. And when he picked it up, he sort of got the wrong one. <laughs> sort of. But, Donald, you shouldn't have kept it. Suppose the Pied Piper might want to use it. Oh, no, he won't need it. Me and Donald figured it out before we swiped, uh, before Donald picked it up accidental-like. What do you mean, you figured it out? Well, you see, the Pied Piper must be over a thousand years old by now, and that's pretty old to go skipping around playing tunes in the street. So we figured it'd be better for his health if we had the flute. Oh, absolutely. Well, you certainly figured it out, all right. And as usual, everything is in your favor. But now that you've got the Piper's flute, can you play it? Go on, Donald, do your stuff. John, you never heard such a flute in your born days. And that was the Mickey Mouse Theatre and their adaptation of the Silly Symphonies classic, The Pied Piper. Wonderful stuff. Well, on to the competition from last time. If you'll remember, I set you all a task to find the entry form hidden away somewhere on the website at www.attaboyclarence.com. And many of you did. Many of you tore your hair out trying to find it. When the dust settled, 378 of you had entered. And from that 378, I pluck a winner using my random robotic computerific machine which selects a name from the spreadsheet of fame, which is basically the spreadsheet containing all the successful entrants, and the name plucked is... Amy Bunyard. Amy Bunyard, you have won a brand new DVD of Anastasia, starring Ingrid Bergman, plus a copy of Spring-Heeled Jack, The Terror of London, in paperback. I shall email you forthwith to arrange sending these out to you. Thank you all for entering, and don't fret if you didn't win, because I have another competition for you. Right now! Seeing as how this week was all about the Silly Symphonies series, how would you like to win a brand new two-disc Silly Symphonies DVD box set featuring over 30 Silly Symphonies classics? Yes, I have one of these to give away to one lucky winner, and it's a beautiful collection. Entering is supremely easy. All you have to do in order to be in the draw is to either go to the Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash attaboyclarence, or just search for attaboyclarence in Facebook, it'll come up and like the competition post that you will find there. Or you can go to the Twitter feed, which is at attaboyc, follow that account and retweet the competition post you will find there. So you have a choice depending on which social media you tend to prefer. And yes, if you do both, then you will be entered twice. The winner will be drawn on the next show, so until then... Thank you for joining me this week. It is a constant pleasure to return to your company. Thank you for continuing to subscribe. Thank you for your reviews, for your emails, and for your constant support. I look forward to returning to your ears in about two weeks. 
for a celebration of one of the Golden Age's best-loved directors. Until then, stay frosty, keep smiling, and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you.